welcome to the nerd party. Maximum warp. Punch it. Punch it. Punch it, Bishop. Punch it. Punch that shit. Let's punch it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Punch It. This is episode 54. My name is Charlene Schmidt, and with me, as always, is... Tristan Riddell. Tristan, we have a very cool topic in store for today. I'm super excited about it because this is something that just sort of spawned out of the blue. It was just some sort of random spitball idea that you threw my way, and I thought, whoa, this is a really cool idea. We have to do this right now. So why don't you tell everybody what that is? Well, one thing that I always found interesting about Star Trek, and I think is a big cornerstone of the franchise, is the captains and having it centered around the captains, which, with uh, Discovery, of course, being the exception. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, it's whenever a captain is announced or whenever uh, we see trailers for a pilot, you know, from 60s onward, it was something of a mystery it was part of the excitement it was oh this is the person who's going to be leading the show and leading the ship literally so who is this person and what are they all about what are their traits what are their weaknesses what are their strengths what kind of command style do they have and since this is punch it writing in star trek what we're going to do today is we're going to analyze the writing of these characters how they were written and also if we have time to talk about how the actors who portrayed these captains affected their own character and affected the writing and uh, and direction of these characters, of these captains. Yes, and this is a very big deal. Like, I remember in the 90s when they were talking about the release of Deep Space Nine. Well, how is Cisco going to be different from Picard? And then conversely, Janeway, what kind of a captain was she going to be? And they made a very, very big deal of it. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of actors don't necessarily get the chance to have a whole lot of input on how their character is written. They just have the control over how it's portrayed. With right. Star Trek and captains especially, I think that is the exception to the rule. I think so. I think probably the only exception to that exception uh, would possibly be Deep Space Nine, just because they had such an utter lockdown on the script and what could be said and what couldn't be said. But that's really just while they were filming. I have no actual data on this beforehand. Like if um, you know, like if Avery Brooks was able to sit down with some of the producers and say, like, listen, this is what I want to do. This is what I. This is what I don't want to do. So that's really for where that comment is coming from. But I think you're absolutely right about that because we hear stories of saying of like people throwing tantrums or being angry about like what's happening to the character and that they have no input and it's up to the producers, it's up to the writers. I mean, like even just now, right. some new news came out about uh, The Walking Dead and about how a certain character is killed off and people are pissed and it even shows some behind the scenes uh, information where some of the actors were just like, yeah, I wasn't told until the day. This was not part of my decision. And it's just interesting how it works and how it doesn't. And whenever I get behind the scenes information about Star Trek, which you sent me earlier today. Yes, we researched for this one, guys. <laughs> in, in preparation for this podcast, I got super excited because it's just so cool to learn the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, and... Depending on the actor or actress, uh, they have varying degrees of how much input they wanted to have on the character 
And uh, let's just say that some of the actors had more of the writer's ear than not. And that even sometimes affected the whole cast in general. But before we get into all of that, I suppose let's start from the very beginning. Let's start with our very first full-time captain. And that, of course, would be James Tiberius Kirk, as portrayed by the great William Shatner. Now, Gene Roddenberry loved to describe Captain Kirk as you know, Horatio Hornblower. He's the cowboy mm-hmm. in space. And when you think about how Captain Pike was portrayed and the stark difference of how Pike looks compared to Kirk, there's definitely a difference. And I cannot imagine William Shatner playing Christopher Pike. No. And no. So, <laughs> you know, I, that's, I think, a testament to how important casting really is. Because William Shatner, I mean, of course, we have the hindsight of decades. He is Captain Kirk. Absolutely. But to further my point even further, Shatner even said way back when, like, he did take Gene's vision of Kirk and then ultimately just melded himself into it after a little while. Because that's what Shatner does. I mean, Shatner is just Shatner, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's actually there's a really interesting paragraph on Wikipedia that I feel like is a perfect encapsulation. That's what I'm going for. Yeah, yeah. Of the blending of Shatner and Kirk, which you sent me. You sent me this. You're like, oh my gosh, you have to read this. And yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, we got to read this on air. So here we go. Go. William Shatner tried to imbue the character with qualities of awe and wonder absent from the cage. He also drew upon his experiences as, as a Shakespearean actor to invigorate the character whose dialogue at times is laden with jargon. Not only did Shatner take inspiration from Ronberry's suggestion of Hornblower, but also from Alexander the Great, the athlete and the intellectual of his time, who Shatner had played for an unsold television pilot two years earlier. In addition, the actor based Kirk partly on himself, with the, quote, the fatigue factor after weeks of daily filming is such that you try to be as honest about yourself as possible, end quote. Bam. A comedy veteran... Shatner suggested making the show's characters as comfortable working in space as they would be at sea, thus having Kirk be a humorous, quote, good pal, the captain, who in the time of need would snap to and become the warrior. Changing the character to be a man with very human emotions also allowed for the development of the Spock character. Shatner wrote that Kirk was a man who marveled and greatly appreciated the endless surprises presented to him by the universe. He didn't take things for granted, and more than anything else, respected life in every one of its weird weekly adventure forms. I think this is a great summation of Kirk slash Shatner. Right. If you have to encapsulate the Kirk character, his view of the universe and how he acts and reacts to what is around him, this is it. I don't know if you can get any better. That's why I sent it to you. When I read that, I just thought, man, (laughs) hashtag nailed it. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you just hashtagged on this show. I did it just to annoy you. I know how much you love it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) But it's so true. And the one thing that really got to me, well, actually several phrases get to me, but one that did get me was just with Shatner being Shatner is after the rigors of filming for so long, he just started being himself. He became Kirk and vice versa. And I think that is a process that happens a lot with actors, with characters that go on series that go for a, a certain length of time. I don't know. I'm not an actor. You could probably attest a little more to this with more acting experience than I'll ever have. But is it just something where you know the character so well that it becomes you and vice versa? 
It really depends. I mean, every single actor has range and some is more limited than others. I feel like the great pieces, the great movies and the great TV shows, they write with their actors in mind. I mean, now, obviously, when you write a movie, most of the time you have no idea who's going to be played in it as well as with uh, with TV shows. And so that's why you create a, a fake biography of the character and you go, okay, who would match this fake biography? Who could play this character? And you have a list. Now, there are some times, which is more rare, but it does happen, where you write a character or you write a piece or you write a film or a TV show with an actor in mind. You say, okay, this specific piece, this is written for Anthony Hopkins specifically. Like, the, he's the only person who can play it. And so if we can't get him, then we need to get somebody who is an Anthony Hopkins type. You know, that that happens. Right. And now, question for you. Do you think that happens a little more often than it used to? Whereas I think, you know, the old traditional way is, is a bunch of actors go in and they audition and then whoever they like the best gets the part. I don't think that really is the old traditional way. I think... Uh, That's still the way? No, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that like even when you go to a golden age of Hollywood and old Hollywood, you had people who had picture deals where they're just like, I'm an MGM actor. I have a seven picture deal. Mm, and so yeah. people go like, okay, well, you know, like the next picture, we're totally going to put you in it. And so they go to the writer and say, you know, write this movie with this kind of character in mind and then put them in. So this has been around for a century, if not longer. Okay. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. You make a really good point. I guess I'd kind of forgotten where that was more the way than an actual audition where you had the multi-picture deal and that was the contract. That's how things were done for big time actors. Once you were discovered, you had it made at least for a while. <laughs> Well, you, you, you have both. You, you have both back then just as you do now. And you have, okay. the, the ha you have the casting call. You have the cattle call. You <laughs> have all of those things. And even, you know, like even large actors, even la actors who've been around for decades still sometimes have to read for the part for the chemistry read or everything like that. But it all depends. And, and with Star Trek... It's not like people are like, you know what? I want a William Shatner. That, that's who I want in this role. And like even with TNG, like, you know, when Picard was written, Gene Ronberry didn't want Patrick Stewart. Thought that he was the worst guy for the, for the role. <laughs> yes, and wanted to put a toupee on him. I mean, this could have gone very wrong. <laughs> but let's continue focusing on Shatner for just a minute. I think with this character in particular, it's a little hard to separate what Shatner contributed and what the writers mm -hmm. brought about and instilled in Kirk as a result of casting Shatner because they are just so synonymous, at least with 50 years of watching them both in this role. One thing that I find really interesting, you're spot on, and one thing that I found really interesting, I w um, I've read most of Shatner's biographies, and uh -huh. I've also read uh, Leonard Nimoy's biographies. And, of course, in both, there's huge Star Trek sections. Well, yes. <laughs> like from the Shatner perspective, you hear him about him being very protective of the Kirk character, especially when they got into the movies. Like he would be involved in rewrites, you know, like he would mm. get the script and then he would send back notes saying Kirk would never say this. This is ridiculous. Kirk would never do this or like, you know, tweak this so it's more Kirk-esque, you know, like that kind of thing. And... Spock did the, excuse me, Nimoy did the same thing as Spock. <laughs> but one thing that happened on the TV show in the 60s before the movies is Shatner was a little pissed off because uh, Spock was becoming the fan favorite. Mm. 
Yes, and yes. more emphasis was being put on Spock's storylines, and Spock was the know-it-all. He was the genius. He was the person who could to detect the tech and fix the problem. And if there was, he was the reactionary character. He was the one who was just like, "Oh, if we have this problem, then we need to alter this and uh, transform this." You know, like uh, it was much more concept-based than Scotty was tech-based. But apparently, Shatner hated that Kirk was not the know-it-all anymore. He was not the one with all the answers. And so if you look at a few episodes in the second season, you will see that Kirk cuts off Spock and answers for him continually, where Spock will raise a question and then give an answer, but Kirk will do that whole thing. Will Will they give the last three words of the sentence to prove that they knew what you were talking about before you had a chance to get it out of your mouth. Oh, wow. I don't know if I've ever noticed this. It got so bad that Nimoy actually went to Gene Roddenberry and said, come on. We, like, <laughs> Knock it off. Both characters can be smart. Both characters have their traits. You know, like, yeah. like let's yeah. not have them compete for intellectual time in the script. And so they kind of laid it back a little bit in the season two and season three. And so... I just felt like that is a perfect encapsulation of people being protective of their characters and influencing the writing in the real world as well as overdoing it, too. Yeah, yeah. Now, question for you, because I don't know if I've ever read Star Trek movie memories. I know that in Star Trek II, Shatner was very unsure about portraying Kirk getting older, and they had to sell mm-hmm. him on that. Were there other instances where he would go back with those notes and say, oh, Kirk would not say that in the other movies? Uh, yeah, uh, it was, um, if, uh, this, it was a while ago since I read it, but one thing I remember, I think it was either Star Trek three or Star Trek four. It was one of the movies that Nimoy directed. Okay. And Shatner brought a lawyer to the room. What? He brought a, physically brought a lawyer to the room and they went over the script line by line. Oh my God. And had to get Shatner's write-off on every single thing involving oh. the character. Oh, that and, is just... And Nimoy, in his book, even said, like, I still, to this day, have no idea why Shatner felt the need to do that. Because Nimoy was talking about how it was always a collaborative process. Even though Nimoy was directing... It must have been the third one. I think it was the third one because... Nemo was talking about how even though he has a rapport with the Star Trek actors and the crew and the producers and everything like that, it was still different. It was still weird because he has to be their peer, their buddy, but also at the same time, he has to command the set. Right. And he, I believe, and if I'm wrong, folks, let us know, I believe that Shatner felt threatened by that because his one-time colleague and peer is now technically his boss on set. Right, which led to the whole thing, oh, I want to be a director now, and they eventually put him on five and yada, yada, yada. Fantastic. So, yeah, that sounds so very uh, Shatner. (laughs) It does, doesn't (laughs) it? And unfortunately, to a a kind of gross degree. I did not know that whole thing about the lawyer. Wow. Um, That sort of makes me want to read the book, and yet, in a way, I'm kind of glad that maybe I didn't now. Well, no, this is in this is in Nimoy's book. Oh, 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 okay. And I've not out. read Nimoy's books, so honestly, you need to read both of Nimoy's. I am Spock. I am not Spock. You need to read both of those. The movie memory, like all of Shatner's stuff, you know, from movie memories to his other ones, it really is a lot of fun. Whether you, whether you like, you know, Shatner's public persona or not, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating read, and it's very funny. Okay. All right. Fair enough. 
Well, all that said, why don't we move on to our next captain? And of course, that is Patrick Stewart as Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Now, with Star Trek The Next Generation in and of itself coming out, I remember that alone was a big deal because suddenly you have another crew and it's not Kirk and Spock and McCoy. What are you doing? <laughs> so the scrutiny started really early with this one. Like, you morons, why would you do anything other than TOS? Oh my god, and it just went on for years and years. You have the, you know, Kirk is better than picard list, and vice versa. You've got why Picard is better than Kirk. I mean, I still have a t-shirt to this day, 10 reasons why Kirk is better than Picard. I don't personally even believe that, but, you know, Star Trek merchandise on clearance, so I bought it, and I needed, like, a night shirt. But, uh... <laughs> uh side, side note, side note, uh, Patrick Stewart, actually, I read a quote from him the other day, He's like, early on in the show, we constantly heard comparisons between Picard and Kirk. And even to this day, I see I see these arguments of who would win in a fight between Kirk and Picard. And he said yeah. that he said, my answer is always the same, that Picard would never fight Kirk because he would negotiate negotiate his way out of it. <laughs> Bam. Exactly. They've got very different styles. And I'm sure that was done somewhat intentionally. For one thing, when you do cast, I mean, Patrick Stewart was an older man than Kirk anyway. And so you have a guy who, uh, he's not necessarily going to be ready to enter a fist fight just at a moment's notice. That's not going to be his first course of action. I think a little bit of that lend itself to the fact that Picard is a diplomat, has a very different style, but also at the ready is his number one, who is ready to get into that fist fight or phaser battle or what have you, while Picard can call the shots. Now, another piece of research that you sent me was a letter that Patrick Stewart wrote to Gene Roddenberry about his character about a quarter of the way through season two. How about you talk about that? Okay, yeah, this is such a great thing that Mission Log talked about way back when they were covering season two of TNG. Yeah, apparently Patrick Stewart and Gene Roddenberry had a really great lunch somewhere midway through season two, and afterward, Patrick Stewart sent Gene a formal letter. It's got Paramount's letterhead and all that on it with suggestions and questions even about where his character was going what is going on with certain things that they may or may not be developing in the series and then he kind of ends with a little bit of a wish list for what he wants to happen with his character and the show so I I actually want to list a couple of those things because they're pretty cool <laughs> so one thing that he does go through is he talks about what he thinks are the relationships that are working and he specifically mentions Will Wheaton he says something to the effect of have I told you how much I enjoy working with him mm -hmm. and also he really was worried that eventually his scenes with Will Wheaton were going to all go down to where Will Wheaton would be working more with LeVar Burton and Jonathan Frakes because they were kind of putting Will Wheaton on the engineering track a little bit. And so he thought, oh, I'm going to lose him. Well, please don't do that. Also, he had some concern, honestly, with Guinan and Will Wheaton also. They were developing that relationship and Patrick Stewart did not want to lose that at all. He also wanted more interaction with Worf. Mm -hmm. He thought it was just a very two-dimensional relationship those two had where it's just he's giving the orders, Worf is receiving them and acknowledging and carrying them out, and that's all they had going for them. He wanted more than that. And then also in terms of uh, personal and romantic relationships, he felt, Picard, he's not getting enough. <laughs> well, he said that there was a void with uh, Gates McFadden leaving 
for season two and that void needs to be filled and thankfully she came back in season three right and he also called into question I was portraying this, and so was Gates McFadden, where Picard and Crusher had some sort of relationship in their past. Is that true or isn't it? We would like an answer. <laughs> and well, then going was, forward. He, yeah, he was talking about the shippers even back then that, you know, like he, he yeah. said, he said, besides the Kirk slash Picard commentary about who was better, who was worse, and how they compare, he said, like, the second most kind of fan mail that he gets was about Picard and Beverly's past. Yeah, and it sounds to me from reading this letter that Patrick Stewart himself was also a Picard and Crusher relationshipper. It sounded like he wanted to move this along a little bit. Mm-hmm. So there you go, guys. Patrick Stewart was a shipper. And he also talked about his time with Guinan, and he said he's like, let's not waste Whoopi's time. You know, yes. like, let's use it wisely. So let's develop relationships where we can. I thought that was fantastic. And and even right down to the nitty gritty, he said he's like, he was talking about, he's like, can, you know, like, it's it's been commented that Picard is a fencer. So let's develop that a little bit more. It's also, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, where did they learn how to use phasers? Was that the academy? Do they need to brush up on their skills? Maybe there could be a training room where he uses his phaser. And I'm like, we saw all those things pop yeah, up. Yeah, so I think clearly... The writing staff took a lot of these suggestions to heart and made at least a little something out of them. The other big thing out of this was that Patrick Stewart really wanted Picard to relax mm-hmm. and get a little more lighthearted. He was so serious in those early years, and that definitely, definitely happened. Both Picard and Patrick Stewart, I think, did relax and get a lot more comfortable, and it, it showed so much on screen. And also this this letter that Patrick Stewart wrote, it was so professional, it was so kind, and it wasn't pushy in the least. No, it was uh-uh. it's, Seriously, people should read it as an example of how to give suggestions but not seem like a jackass saying that things yeah. need to happen. This isn't written like a list of demands whatsoever, even though he's putting some requests in. But yeah, mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart, I mean, come on, we know that he's a very classy guy. He's definitely a role model, (laughs) just like his character. And so we ought to put this in the show notes so that if people haven't read it yet, they should. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll we'll link in the show notes. So if you go to the nerdparty.com slash punch it, you'll be able to find uh, the show and then find the show notes. And also, if you want to talk to us about what you think about uh, the writing of these captains or how these actors affected their writing, please go to the nerdparty.com slash contact, fill out the punch it form, and it'll send us an email. And also, you can find us on social media by going to the Facebook, uh, going to the Facebook, go to Facebook. <laughs> Facebook? What is this, 2004? <laughs> you can go to facebook.com slash the nerdparty. You can also find us on Twitter at Join Nerd Party. You can find me personally on Twitter at The Insane Robin. And you can find me at Oh The Profanity. So is there anything more that you want to talk about Picard? Because the writing of Picard, I mean, you kind of summed it up at the end there that he definitely relaxed. I mean, like he's the leader. He's the diplomat. He, I think he is definitely more of a fighter than people give him credit for. I mean, I, I keep thinking about that time when the Borg appeared on the bridge and he just straight up tackled him. You know, and uh, yeah, I mean, he has his moments for sure. He's no slouch either. He's no slouch, but he's also no Kirk. I mean, there's no comparison to Kirk when it comes to fighting. But no, no, he's a very different man. And he has got a very different commanding style for sure. I did love the consistency, at least in the TV show of Picard. There was like when he loosened up and when he got uh, more relaxed, it wasn't a betrayal of season one Picard. It was just a natural growth that we saw in the actor as well as the character. 
Very much so. And I also feel like once TNG really hit its stride in the third season, that also just contributed to that cast gelling together that much more. Mm -hmm. Everybody just working just in a little more synchronous fashion. Is that a word? (laughs) It is now. So it just all seemed to really naturally come together. Yeah, I think naturally is that key word. It just happened so gradually that there's no stark change necessarily. You know, it just happened. And I think in a way that is a part of why we love this cast so much is we watch them grow. Yeah, and I think it's it's no coincidence that with uh, Patrick Stewart writing that letter and maybe having a little bit more influence over his character, that season three onward is some of the best Star Trek The Next Generation. And also this was, obviously it was because of Gene Roddenberry's health, which I am not making light of, but his influence became less and less as the show went on. And you saw those characters change and mold and develop. And I feel like Gene Roddenberry was the type of person who had a vision and said, this is the vision and this is where we're going to go and this is how they're going to be. And it could be a little strict. This is all just my interpretation. This is No, I agree with that. I was going to say the same exact thing. And so once people like Michael Piller came on board and Jerry Taylor and whatnot, Mm -hmm. they didn't betray Gene Roddenberry, I don't think. But they did have to... They did have to mold the series a little bit to give it just a little more oomph. And that meant also with the characters, refining them just a little bit. And when you have an actor like Patrick Stewart at the helm of the show, why not take his suggestions? <laughs> now, beyond this letter, I don't know You know how often, say, they brought him into the, the writing room and said, hey, what ideas do you have for the character? I know Marina Sirtis often said, whenever they did bring me in and ask for suggestions for Troy, she said, well, you guys are the writers. I'm the actor. I'll do whatever you want me to do. With Patrick Stewart, I'm not sure exactly how that relationship went along. Yeah, I, I see a, a stark contrast between those two actors and characters. Uh <laughs> But how about we go ahead and move on to Deep Space Nine, where we started as a commander and not a captain. Yeah, now that alone is a little bit of a departure. We've always had a captain, but we've also always had a starship. And so right from the get-go, Benjamin Sisko was going to be doing different things. Yeah, this, uh, this was great. This was another sample of how they created a character, they wrote a character who was different, not only different from... Picard but different from Kirk as well like so many people I think believed were like okay well you have a Kirk type and you have a Picard type and then that's it Benjamin Lafayette Sisko was neither of these people but yet had some of the best and worst qualities of these individuals and it's not like oh he's either Kirk or Picard or even a blending of the two he's his own unique character and he's a family man yes that's another big departure as well he's a victim of loss He's a victim Again. of trauma and tragedy. And he, like like you talked about, he's on a space station. He's not on a ship. And he thought about leaving Starfleet. You know, Kirk and Picard are lifetime members. They're like, I'm not going to leave. You know, right, this, this, is, right. this is my life and this is, this is my career. And so right off the bat, you have so many differences written into this character. And personally, I feel like Avery Brooks was the perfect choice because they, they auditioned vastly different types of actors, vastly different types of individuals who would have brought something very unique to the character. But Avery Brooks brings that calm, command, no BS mentality. 
Yeah, yeah, very cool under pressure, knows how to get things done. And I would say Avery Brooks, just as a man himself, he is as complicated as Cisco. So they're oh, a very yeah. good fit in that respect, absolutely. What I find really interesting about the whole s- the story of casting uh, Avery Brooks as Cisco is he didn't really want the part. He thought it was laughable, like, really? Are you kidding me? No. And he almost didn't make it to the audition. Actually, no, I think they rescheduled the audition. He called them on a route, like he got delayed or something. He's like, nah, this isn't meant to be. It's not going to happen. And they said, no, 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 we'll move you. We'll do it again. Which, honestly, I, I think they really, really wanted to see him because I don't know if they would have done that for everybody. And then at the insistence of his wife, he ultimately took the part. She said, you have to do this. And then ultimately what convinced him was the writing of Emissary. I think he saw what a well-crafted and complicated and I think for an actor, fun character that could be to portray and then also representation man the first black lead on a star trek series this was important and he knew he could make a profound impact with that especially as a family man i mean we had not seen a commander of any sort really like with their kid in tow i mean yes kirk had david but he did not raise david so this was going to be the first time and i think he thought hey i can say a lot just by being here and so he took it and that's absolutely fantastic to to know and and to hear that that you know like he's just like i don't know about this you know like it's not meant to be but then i love that his wife told him no no no, you have to do this because he changed the landscape of star trek and also helped the advancement in science fiction and he has gone on record to talk about how, like exactly what you said about how the representation matters and he wanted to bring that representation to Star Trek and TV. And he also said that it was very important to him and he was also very thankful that they had the focus of the father-son relationship. And he says that there needs to be more at the time, I'm still today, I'm sure, there needs to be more positive representation of a black father with a black son who is there, who is a constant who is involved and one thing that uh, Avery Brooks said that he hated about Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine's finale was that they had him abandon his child, his unborn child. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this bothered me to no end as well. I was really unsatisfied with that. How about you? If I could, like, there was a lot that that I wish I could change about the ending of, of Deep Space Nine. I loved it. But there was a lot that I wish I could change, and that was absolutely the biggest one. And just because of the behind-the-scenes knowledge of Avery Brooks and how the absent black father stereotype was not something that he wanted to go, wanted to feed into. Right, and then they take all this good work that they've done and then just do the opposite of it at the very end. Really? Are you kidding? No! No, 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 no! I feel like that was very much, and this is just my guess, I feel like that was very much a victim of ignorance in the writer's room. Probably. Also, I imagine they had plans at some point to maybe bring him back in a movie, in something, because it was just going to be for a little while. And then, well, the show's over and they didn't do a whole lot with Deep Space Nine in the movies. And so that was that. Now, I know in the novel verse, there's a better fate for Cisco. He does come back. But on camera... Yeah, this was really disappointed because they did such a great job during the series. And then at the very end, you guys. I guess we'll find out a little bit more of where they were going to go or what they would like to do with a fictional uh, season eight when the documentary comes out. 
Right. Yeah, that's still in the works. Now, is it still due to come out in February? Because Adam Nimoy left as the director, and so Ivan Stephen Bear has the reins now. Are they still on course to... I think so. I think if there was a delay, it wasn't that big of a delay. So okay. we're still getting it. It's still happening, and it's still going to be great. I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think no matter what happens, whenever it does come out, it's going to be amazing. I mean... They've got everybody on board for this thing, so it's it, there's going to be except, some really except ironically of who we're talking about. Except Avery for Brooks. Avery Brooks, he's not in there. Oh wow, okay, <sighs> that's that's kind of a shame. But you know what? He's he's busy playing his piano right now, and he teaches as well. He's <laughs> well, his his reasoning was interesting and something that I completely understand because this was one job that he had in the '90s, and he's moved on from it. He he, it's not that he doesn't like talking about Deep Space Nine or that he doesn't like. Cisco, it's that he's what he said was, I've said everything there is to say about this character and about this show. Oh, that makes some sense. And it's not like he needs the money from conventions, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so Iris Stephen Baird did talk about how they are going to put in unused interview footage of Avery Brooks in this documentary. Oh, hey, that's very smart. Well, that's cool. And now that you bring that out, that does make sense where Avery Brooks is coming from and why he would just, just not want to really be a part of it. I mean, if you think about what you were doing 20 years ago, maybe you'd be into it and maybe you wouldn't. But if you're constantly revisiting it anyway, like a lot of these actors do at conventions, it's not like it's a fresh rehash. So what did you think about the consistency or lack of consistency, depending on your opinion, of the writing of Cisco? Well, with him being such a uh, complicated guy, it's hard to know exactly what does fit him consistently as a character and what doesn't fit. Honestly, I do think it all fits. I do think that writing Cisco as uh, like a brash character doing something completely out of line for a Starfleet captain with his reasons is absolutely in character. And at the same time, being completely cool under pressure and commanding a space battle also fully in line. I feel like that's just the man that he is. And for him, I think it's all about the big picture. Wikipedia has a great thing in the uh, Benjamin Sisko entry of Sisko is a builder. You know, the guys on the starships, they go to and fro. They're not very long. They just, they, they kind of command whatever they need to do, get it done, and then they're off on the next thing. Sisko is there for the long haul, and he's the one on the ground doing the actions as well as giving the orders you know, on this station. And so it's a very different process, I think. And so, you know, I think that's a really fascinating take, actually, on a Starfleet leader. To build off of what you just said, I loved that the emphasis on that, because not like he is literally and figuratively a builder. Like he yes. worked at the shipyards. He built his own ancient Bajoran ship. He helped build up the station. He helped build relations between the Federation and the Bajoran homeworld. And and also just like he planned on building his home on Bajor. I loved that about him because it was so different from the previous captains where Kirk had a house, but it was really just a place to put his stuff because his life was in the stars. Right, and um, yeah. Jean-Luc Picard, he even said, he's like, I like to consider this ship my home. He said exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, he is home. <laughs> it, and with Benjamin Sisko, it was... he talked to an admiral he said he's like listen you know i'll go wherever starfleet tells me to go i'll go on whatever ship i'll go on whatever post but when i come home it's going to be on bajor i loved that 
That's pretty cool, especially considering how ambivalent he was to the whole thing about the prophets, his involvement with that. His arc throughout those seven years is quite a journey, which is another thing that I think we see very nicely developed that maybe Kirk and Picard didn't get quite as much. You know what? Now that you say that, it's absolutely true. There is a huge character arc and growth from the reluctant religious figure to someone completely embracing as well as transcending into um, a different form because of this religion. And the writing is consistent in its growth where there's times when he doesn't want to be involved. There are times when it's a little sketchy. There are times when he goes a little crazy, literally and figuratively, but (laughs) it works. I feel like the writers were very, they had a vision and they stuck to it and they, but they still allowed growth and change along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a part of that also is DS9's more serialized storytelling format, even though they still had those episodic moments, but they had some serious arcs going on there. You know, Char, we have Janeway, we have Archer. And we also have, maybe we could even talk about Chris Pine in the movies. Sure. And, you know, like, you know, and and also Discovery, just a little bit, even on a very limited amount. But I don't think we have enough time. Everything yet. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't think we have enough time to finish this. What do you think about a part two? I think we definitely need to do a part two because I know there's a lot with Kate Mulgrew and Janeway. Of course, it's all embedded in my head for years and years. But we've got to talk about Bakula being Jonathan Archer. And yeah, I would love to touch on Chris Pine. I hadn't even thought about that for this show. We definitely need to do that now. And then I would love to touch on Discovery just a little bit, even though we hardly know anything at this point still. (laughs) (laughs) So part two, definitely. Let's do this. All right, fantastic. Well, you guys know what we're going to give you next week. It's going to be part two of the captaincy and the writing of said captains and how the actors affect them. Uh, So next week, it's going to be a fun time punching it. Ready for warp, sir. Let's punch it. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.